imagine how excited I am for this episode. Avi Klein is full of the most amazing tips and tricks in our field. You will never look at a tow truck the same again. He is a private investigator extraordinaire. I didn't really even ask him for his elevator speech because once we got going, I just couldn't stop asking all sorts of questions. He did go to law school and that is a whole section. And you know how picky I am about lawyers on Fraudish. I love his take on creativity and getting facts. All Fraudish episodes are must listen, but this one is so actionable, you must listen to the very end and you will be taking notes. And I know Abby's daughter will be listening. Hi there. Thank you. Let's get started. We have a great guest today, and I'm going to say a great LinkedIn guest because I found Avi via LinkedIn, and um, you guys must connect with Avi, like for sure, because he provides so much great stuff. But we're going to get started with our first little speed round. What do you think of when you hear the word fraud? Fraud? Uh, I think the hustle culture that we have in this country Ooh, I really like that. Any specific examples? Yeah, almost certainly. I mean, I think that in the United States, there's something about the get rich quick scheme that's deep in our culture, the need for shortcuts, the way to the idea of wanting to avoid hard work. And there's a certain culture of people who either don't have enough education or can't think of another way to make a living. And I think much fraud comes from people kind of having a hustler mentality, which I define as being much more focused on deals and not very interested in providing value. And that tends to be the defining feature of many kind of scams. Okay, could that have any chance to be part of where you live in the Silicon Valley? Uh, I do think that there's definitely an element of that. I mean, you see that in Bitcoin, like most particularly, there's obviously lots of very earnest and well-meaning people in the Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrency space, but it's a type of thing that you see a lot of people jumping into because they see get rich quick uh, adventures ahead of them. And those same guys, now they're doing Bitcoin, but previously they probably, they previously were probably doing SEO marketing and maybe they had like an insurance license for a year and a real estate license for half a year. And they bounce around from one thing to another chasing the trends and each thing is just about the deal. They just want the cash. And that's why they show off all the time, all these, their riches and they want to be on Instagram because what's most important to them is the image of success, but not real success, not long-term success and not providing value to other people. And that's what you see across the board in, with scam artists and all kinds of people who are not really contributing well to our society and culture. Okay, so this is really interesting. And I, you know, this is supposed to be a speed round, but I'm like... This has gone, made me go off on this path. Um, I think a lot of people are going to think this is young people. What What is your take on the age for the hustle? Well, there are certain people who never get out of it. And if you don't know how to do anything else, then that's what you keep on doing. You know, I always tell this to my lawyer clients that if they were law they're lawyers now, and if they move to another state or another country, they would probably just do something like what they do now, because that's what they know how to do. And if I were a plumber and I moved to another state or another country, I would just continue being a plumber or something in construction. And scam artists, they just keep doing that because that's all they know. And they tend to have their trick 
or the thing that they know how to do, whether it's sort of fundraising, whether it's a forgery, whether it's, you know, any range of things, but they kind of have their trick, just like you and I have a profession and they just continue doing that. I think a good question that I don't have the answer to is like, what causes them to stop other than prison or a major judgment? Um, but you see, you know, especially like in real estate, which kind of tends to be a more mature domain for some of these guys as they get older, that they just sort of become more sophisticated in their scam and they do more real estate syndicating and they can maybe they get into lending and they get some sort of private party thing going on. So, you know, as we all get older and become more sophisticated in our businesses and our understanding of things, and so too do scam artists, I think. Oh, okay. So, um, okay. That was a little bit of a longer speed round, but it was very, very important, I think. Okay. When I say ethics, what do you think about ethics? What do I think about ethics? I think there's not enough of it. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I think it's incredibly important. You know, we see that in just in my own business, of course. There are a lot of ethical issues that private investigators have to confront on a regular basis. Um, you know, very noticeably and very controversially, issues around pretexting and issues around bank searches, which are sort of the two primary, you know, ethical lines that are sometimes a little shaky and a little unclear. Um, but the private investigators navigate and. You know, I think you can tell a lot about a private investigator by what their answers to their questions about bank account searching and pretexting are. Oh, do you have um, again, my speed round is just like totally off today, but I, this is so good. Can you tell me if you remember a really good class you have taken on ethics? Mm. You know, I always go back to when I took a, you know, in law school, you have to take an ethics course. Um, there's an ethics exam that's sort of connected to the bar exam as well. And you have to take a semester of ethics. And that's actually a really good example of an institution. And maybe it's mandated by the bar to basically force people to pay attention and think a little bit about these things. Now, not everyone is going to pay the same amount of attention um, as others um, or care very much about the course they're in. You know, of course, if you're not an ethical person, you being an ethics class is kind of going to be like me in a math class, you know, like you're going to kind of just kind of grit and bear your way through it. But, you know, I remember very well thinking like this is a this is really good practice. Like these people are all we're all going to be out there in the world and getting some explanation about ethics, especially about things that are not always totally obvious. I think some ethical questions that we face are pretty obvious about not stealing and treating people fairly and kindly. But like for lawyers, there's actually a lot of complicated issues about handling attorney money or handling client money and interacting with other attorneys and your responsibilities sort of generally to society. And I think that's very important. And I think there should be more of it. Oh, this brings me back. My um, late husband's, one of his best friends was a lawyer. And guess what uh, part of the bar exam he failed? The ethics exam. Yeah. And he ended up being, I mean, he obviously retook it. And he ended up, um, he started out thinking he was going to do environmental law. Well, then he went to the polluters and became uber successful. But I always remember that. And I was like, oh, I could have told you that. So, um, <laughs> OK. And then last speed round, but not speed round. Who makes better embezzlers, men or women? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think that you probably see more women in pink collar um, embezzlement. I think maybe it's a matter of scale. Because I do think that 
what you're able to embezzle or steal from other people depends on access. So when we talk about people who are doing sort of embezzling in companies because they're the accountant of some sort of small company and they can fool around with the bills and send checks to themselves and something something like that, you know, that's a relatively actually like low tier kind of embezzlement crime compared to what can be done by huge inside huge institutions, huge companies. And it certainly is the case, one that men are more risk averse. I mean, are less risk averse than women are. Men have much more of like, oh my God, I've got to provide, I've got to look rich. This is much more than women, I think. But there's also the the structural sexism component that there are more men in higher positions of power and more positions of control and have more opportunities to a certain extent to defraud other people because they have more authority or apparent authority just by nature of being men. And I would love to see a world that was fair and just across genders in which women had the opportunities to steal just as much as men do. Oh, my God. I knew this was going to be an amazing episode. Like, truly, this is like, ah! Um, Okay, so I am looking and we connected. um, uh, Let's see. We connected relatively recently and we connected because of LinkedIn. And you guys, I will tell you, Avi posts the most amazing stuff on LinkedIn. Like he, uh, huge shout out to Brian Willingham, but you post more regularly, which, you know, um, so you have to, you guys have to get connected to Avi because he posts such good stuff. Now, um, his about on LinkedIn, one of the best abouts I have ever read, like ever read. And I'm not blowing smoke up your, you know, what, I believe in LinkedIn. Like I've been on it since 2008 or 2009. Um, I've coached people on LinkedIn a lot, but you like, he gives representative engagements, you guys, like very important to show also for searching. Don't you think? I do. Yeah. How long have you been on LinkedIn? Well, I mean, I guess I've been on LinkedIn technically, you know, probably since like 2004, 2005, but I never did anything with it except for investigative purposes, which we should also know, just as an aside, is very, very effective. And I pay for the super premium service so I can do super premium searching, which I highly recommend if you can, if you have the purpose for it. Um, But really only in the last six to nine months have I become like a regular everyday poster on LinkedIn. And um, in addition to it being very good for my business and my profile, um, I really like it. And it's kind of an opportunity. I I used to work at a big, big company and there were investigators who, you know, I helped train and I got a lot of pleasure out of being able to share what I knew with younger investigators. And now I work for myself and I have a part-time employee, but I don't have sort of the same opportunities. And I, I do like to share what I know. And um, and I appreciate getting great feedback from other people. And there is a really nice dynamic in the investor, in the investigator and legal community on LinkedIn. And it's really fun to be part of it. I really like it. Yeah. So you are definitely sharing is caring. You're not hoarding your sources, um, which I love. And is there something that happened six or nine months ago where you're just like, I, I'm going all in on LinkedIn? Well, you know what happened was is one of my bugbears is the Venmo privacy settings. I don't know if you know about the Venmo privacy settings, but there's a good opportunity for me to remind everyone 
that the default settings on your Venmo account are to publicly show your transactions and your friends. That's the default setting. It's really contrary to all normal practice, especially considering that these are financial transactions. And one day I was thinking about it again. I had been reminded probably because I did a transaction and was annoyed about this. And I started thinking, who do I know that has open Venmo accounts that I shouldn't be able to find? And I just thought of all like the investigators that I knew that were in my phone. And so I just sort of quickly started going through them and finding tons of investigators and attorneys at very, very high end firms, very, very big names, people who really should know better. Um, I mean, I could go back through many of the people in my old firm and see that they were doing transactions and I could like learn. I say, oh, I see that fellow that I used to work with. He got married because I can see some other people are talking about getting him a wedding present and things like that. And so I first I texted some friends and I was like, hey, just you should know, like, you know, cut that out. Here's what you need to do. And then I thought, I'll just write something on LinkedIn about this. This will be I don't usually do that. Every once in a while, I would post something and I got a really, really big response um, from it. And some people were actually a little unhappy with me that I wrote that. They felt I should sort of keep it to myself or not cast shame on the investigator community. And uh, to one of the people who wrote me, I wrote back and I, I just said, you know, I think for an industry that goes around trying to tell people how they should manage their own security, I think everyone should have a, a little bit of good humor about taking a little bit of ribbing themselves. And, you know, that's okay. So, you know, I got a really nice response. And, you know, I think I probably waited a little bit before, you know, it was primed a little bit. I started, you know, just like how the algorithm wants. You know, you're getting that, you know, those hits of attention. And I'm like, I'm just like everyone else. I like attention. And I was like, oh, I'm getting a little attention here. And I was feeling satisfied. And I started thinking of another post. And then I just kind of started thinking, you know, I know that people say, oh, you should post every day. And I was already kind of going in a process of trying to reshape my business development because it had sort of lain dormant a lot during COVID. And so this sort of became one of the big things that I decided I was going to do to kind of jumpstart my business development because I had not been out there at all meeting people. And, you know, I just kind of found that I had a lot to write about and I just started writing down ideas and typing them out in the evening and developing a big portfolio. And, you know, I usually have like 20 or 30 kind of in some stage or another ready to go. And I try to every day things happen and I if something happens that interests me, I'll take a note and say, oh, that was kind of a fun thing I did. Or that's here's an idea of something that I'm thinking about. And, you know, then I just come back to it when I have downtime. OK, so again, so many different levels here. You guys look at your Venmo. Um, I just paid for my car to be detailed and I'm pretty sure it's all out there in the, you know, ozone. Um, so um, that and I have to bring up the tow truck one mm. but just let's talk about the tow truck and you guys honestly connect with avi you will be so happy the tow trucking issue is really interesting i think um just to go sort of frame up what it is so there's a company called drn out there and what they do is they mount license plate readers on tow trucks and the reason they do this is for the purpose of assisting the repossession industry, the auto repo business. Because if you don't pay your car loan and a certain amount of time has come, 
then a tow truck and they can just send a tow truck to come to your house. And they really, they show up in the middle of the night and they just yank your car and you wake up in the morning to take your kids to work and your car is gone. And what it's a problem because they often don't know where the car is. So this is a very, very good way for the repo business to do it. And they have these relationships with the tow truck drivers where not only is there a revenue share, is there a revenue share model, but if the tow truck guy is just driving around town and all the time he's driving around, he's sucking up every license plate he passes parked on the freeway. He just sucks it up. He's, you know, it's just a computer doing it. But if he passes one that is repoable, he can get a bounty right then. He just snags it. So everyone's making a huge amount of money on it. But I think the the company that collects the data realized that there was another market for this, and that's for private investigators. And they sell that data also to private investigators. And I should note, I want to say, because this is really important, the data does not include anything that comes from the license plate readers that are now being mounted universally, from what I can tell, at least in big cities, on police cars and on parking enforcement vehicles, in toll lanes and in toll booths. That's all government data. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about just this private data. But you have no privacy rights to it. Because you're out in your car, not only is your car out in public where you have no privacy rights, the license plate itself doesn't belong to you. That's the property of the state of California. You don't own that. You have to return it if you get rid of your car. So you have no rights here whatsoever. And so what I can do is if I have your license plate, which maybe I saw it on your social media, or maybe I, using my license, ran a search to the DMV, which told me all the cars that are registered at your address, then I can just throw your license plate into this database and it will kick me me back a report. They'll show me all the times it's been spotted and it can go back many, many years. And the effectiveness of it, of course, is going to depend on where you live. Um, There's certainly a socioeconomic class question related to this because your car is going to be in a place where tow trucks are likely to go on a kind of a regular basis, often for repoing or because cars are breaking down. But in places like Los Angeles, it's very, very thorough. And everyone drives everywhere and parks in big lots to do their shopping and things like that. Um, But one of the things I talked about in my post, which I think is really worth thinking about, you know, there's a lot of things like this that like I'm happy to use it because it helps my clients win cases and makes me look good. And it's all totally lawful. But I also wish didn't exist because I'm a person also out there with my own privacy interests. And I don't like the idea that people can do these things to me. Um, but it is the case, you know, I have clients that work really hard with uber wealthy people and with celebrities, and they create these very complicated structures in order to make it impossible to to find them because they don't want crazy stalkers or fans chasing them down and things like that. And they might put the car in someone else's name and things like that, but this has nothing to do with that at all. And let's say you were somewhere in Hollywood and you were just at the coffee bean having a coffee and you saw a celebrity roll up in their Ferrari, you could take that plate and take it to your local private investigator. And if that guy had no ethics whatsoever, we talked about ethics earlier, if he was one of those guys and there are a lot of bad PIs out there, he could run it and tell you all the other places that Ferrari had been seen. Now, of course, people who drive Ferrari, they don't necessarily park on the street, but you can see the idea here that you could easily find a person And all their efforts to hide would be for nothing because the item is we're talking about an item that's associated with them, but we're not using personal information about them to track it. So they can't hide it because you have to have a license plate exposed. And so I think as from a privacy perspective, I think this is really a bad, bad, bad idea. But for a case perspective, it's a very, very good idea. (laughs) 
Yeah. So one of the best customs agents I worked with was a repo guy before he became a customs agent. And he was in the Bay Area. He was fantastic. Just absolutely fantastic. Um, And then also, I love Twitter. And there's an account I follow on Twitter about um, the car dealership business because there's a lot. They get embezzled a lot. And I just follow it. Repo are way up. People are way behind right now. And their car payments are crazy. Like they did a survey and people's car payments are like over $1,500. And I'm like, what the? Um, And so this company is like, you know, if I could buy their stock, literally I'd be buying their stock. Okay. I don't give stock advice here. We know. Um, The other thing is like, I was driving the other day in my little town of Bend, Oregon, and I saw two tow trucks and I just like, I kind of was like, Ooh, are they taking my plates? Cause here I'm in Bend. It's different than California, but it made me think about like so many things. And everyone talks about big brother, the government. Oh, and SPIs, we know there is no one master database of criminal history. Like, you know, there just isn't one. But Big Brother is like big corporation, don't you think? I do. And, you know, I think that people, you know, we hear a lot, like at least in the last, especially in the last couple of years about issues like Facebook and all this data collection. And of course, there's a lot more attention to this in Europe than there is here, but we all see it all the time that you do a search for some camping equipment and then you're being bombarded with ads and people even report, I was just talking to my wife, I didn't even search anything. And then all of a sudden I get some things, right? And you know that's very concerning, but I think what people don't understand is that much more personal debt, that's just that, oh, she likes to go camping or he has a dog and might be interested in a dog food ad, but information about where you live and your phone numbers and all kinds of personal information like that are widely accessible and really not very restricted whatsoever. Um, and, you know, as you know very well, Kelly, and all the private investigators listening know, you can just pull a database report for almost no money that's very good based on credit headers. It's going to tell me every address you lived in since you were 18. And you can't do that in any other country in the world. It's only in the United States that you can do that. There's really a cultural and legal perspective that things like where you live are not truly private information. And there's a long historical context for that that we don't need to get into here, but it is a very unique American way of thinking about things that, yeah, I can just buy information that tells you tells me where you live and you don't even need to be a PI. Everyone knows now people go search online and you can go to any kind of peoplefinder.com website. And while that data doesn't come from credit headers, it just comes from other commercial mailing services. And most of the time, it's pretty good. Yeah. If you want to be a criminal in the U.S., you have to have a name of John Smith or, you know, Mary Smith. Or you should just maybe leave and go to a different country. What do you think? (laughs) No. Well, there's just so much more opportunity here because, you know, this is the land of scam artists. So I think, like, if you really were a bad guy, this is probably a good place uh, to do it, or at least certainly seems that way. We have so many of them. Yeah. Yeah. So now your business is 
um, I'm going to say, okay, you guys also, Avi is an attorney. And you know, my audience knows I am very particular about which attorneys I get to be on Fraudish. And um, we had a pre-call and uh, I kind of forgotten Avi was an attorney because like he posts so much stuff that like attorneys don't, um, you know, generally post. Um, so you work for attorneys primarily. I do. Most of my practice, 95% of my practice is um, I work for litigators, um, mainly commercial litigators, and I do some white collar defense work as well. And um, because you're an attorney, do you think that you are, let's treated maybe better than others because of your background? I do think it's easy. It may be easier for me to just develop sort of professional rapport with my clients. Um, you know, they can just have a sense that I am more of a colleague to them. And, you know, I went to law school with some of them or I went to the same law school, with some of them. And I think they can tell just from talking to me that, you know, I, I'm an educated person. I understand the law. Um, I'm very interested in their cases and, um, you know, I think that is one of my value adds is that I can I understand what they're trying to do and where they're trying to go. And I think I can ask good questions to help them kind of refine what their thoughts are about the investigation. And, you know, I can really, you know, I think I really add a lot of value just by being much more of a teammate than rather just a vendor. You know, they they work with they work with me. I don't just do stuff for them. We work together collectively on projects. Okay, so now fraudish audience, don't go apply to law school because of this, you know. So that would but, be a very uh, expensive route into this business. <laughs> yeah, it definitely would. So um I also get the sense from you, you are more creative than 90% of attorneys out there. And you know, I, I don't want to oh, go ahead. No, I don't want to give attorneys um, a hard time about it. I think there's a real distinction between what attorneys do and what investigators do, which I think is explains why it often seems that attorneys seem surprisingly ignorant of some of the things that we're able to do. You know, it's, for instance, like it's not at all unusual that a practicing attorney has absolutely no idea how to search even their own state local state court website. And I'm always sort of a little surprised by that. But you know, one of the tags that they always say about what does a lawyer do? They say a lawyer applies the law to the facts. So you go to the lawyer and you've got a certain fact pattern of things that have happened. And the lawyer's job on both sides is to say, okay, well, these facts are sort of like these other circumstances that happened before. And in those circumstances, the law was understood this way. So we'll understand it this way this time as well. And they apply the law to the facts. But attorneys are not trained in any way on how to obtain facts. Um, when they when they start practicing, they get into discovery and they learn something. Often they learn a lot about discovery. But discovery is really a completely different uh, animal. In discovery, you just get handed over a huge volume of material and you use staff. And now I think, you know, AI and other digital tools to sift through it. But you don't have to sort of affirmatively like try to go out and get it. There's a little bit of creativity that might be involved in, you know, let's say you're dealing with a million documents, what search terms are you gonna use to sort of start cutting away at it? But it's all there in front of you. You didn't have to do anything to go get the data. And private investigators, 
we're, we don't do anything about the law and I don't give any legal advice to my clients or any conclusions like that. But my job is to go out and find facts for them and to help them get better facts than the facts that they already have. And that's what I think requires at times some creativity and ingenuity because that's all I do. And if a lawyer doesn't find what they want in discovery, it's no slur against them. Surely they they sent all the correct forms and they asked for all the things and they can argue and complain if they don't think the production was sufficient, but it's not their job to get the facts. But my job is to get facts. And if I don't get the facts, then I don't get rehired. And it is one of the things too that distinguishes, you know, independent investigators versus investigators in some of the big box companies, which do very, very good work, but they have big brands that support them and bring them in a lot, will keep bringing them in revenue. And it's, you know, I'm not trying to give them a hard time, but if they don't get findings, they're going to be just fine. They got plenty of clients, huge institutional clients, and they'll just keep coming back. But my clients need findings. And if I don't get findings, they're going to wonder, well, I thought this guy was supposed to be a good private investigator and he's very expensive, but he didn't find anything. And so, you know, I have to really put in that work on every case to do absolutely everything I can to make sure that my clients get what they're looking for. And that has made it has made me I'm a much better investigator now than I was when I worked at a big firm. And to a great extent, that's the reason, because I had to go build a client base basically from nothing. And the only way I could do that was by getting findings. You eat what you kill. That's right. That's how that's how it goes. Yeah. So I had an attorney I worked with on a case for several years and um, we got a lot of discovery. And um, one of the first terms he wanted us to look for was never. He goes, I love never because we can disprove never. And so that always stuck with me is like, you know, that was kind of his go to is I want never in board meeting minutes and emails, everything. And so never was like one of the top of the words that he wanted us to look for. That's a very I like that. That's very, very clever. I remember someone once telling me that what they like to do would be when doing a Google search would be to go on Google and do a a file type search of PDFs for the words privilege and confidential on people's websites to see if they had accidentally uploaded anything in there that they shouldn't have uploaded. Ooh, that's a good one. You guys do that. Do that. Absolutely do that. Um, So now I'm looking through your LinkedIn posts because again, they are so, so good. Um, And you have besides the tow truck one, which I truly love, um, you have one about, and I'm just going to read it. Many lawyers have access to public records databases through Nexus or Westlaw. Here's how to use them more effectively without adding much time to the project. Like, this is so good because time is money. Is it not? It is. Um, And I do think that that's something particularly that attorneys are very, very conscious about. And I do think there's a lot of things, you know, I always like getting work. I'm delighted to get work from my clients, but there's actually, I would rather to a certain extent for very small things that my clients just engage in a little bit of self-help because I would rather help them expand that search into something that's bigger and more fruitful. But a lot of small searches and a lot of small tests, they can actually do, but they're just not trained on how to do it. And I like that LinkedIn gives me a way to say, hey, you know, next time, just try this. You'll be fine. 
Yeah. Yeah. And um, you get lots of people that, um, you know, respond to your posts. And uh, another one that I responded to just recently was one of my investigator spidey senses, and I love spidey senses, is the ability to instantly detect a Regis location, Regis location, like we work. Um, and I used one when I was doing a big undercover. And, you know, I love that. I mean, there are reasons for them, but if you are, quote, a big corporation using one, that's a big red flag. It is. And I see it more often than I really ought to, because, you know, there's something about the con artists and the hustler mindset that is also very interested in legal and business formalities. You know, this is why you'll see that they often have a kind of a magical belief in the limited liability company as a kind of a get out of jail free card. And people will go and they'll want to set up a website to make themselves look like big and special. They tend to be a little cheap. So they'll be like the same type of Squarespace or Wix site that, you know, most of us <laughs> use. And then for some reason, they'll want to put something on the location space, I think, because it makes them sound like, you know, more serious, more respectable to have a, an office space. And but then they put these addresses, which are if anyone looked it up, it's clearly a mistake. It would really be much better if they would just choose like it's not like they're getting any mail. So it would be much better. I would think they should just choose the office of some, you know, white collar law firm or some white shoe law firm or any famous building, Transamerica building or whatever, and just do that. It would be sound, like, no, like I said, no one's going to send them any mail there. But these Regis sites are just a huge tell that you're just like not who you say that you are. So, you know, I'm not here to give advice to bad guys, but, you know, I think that we could all do better in our work, I suppose. Yeah. Bad guys, I don't think listen to fraudish. Let's hope they don't. Um, so, yeah, the um, con artist hustler sort of mindset. Now, I don't know. And we didn't talk about this beforehand. Like, but I I imagine you are good um, with pop culture. Are you good with pop culture? I'm okay. Yeah, you know, I, I do I do have a lot of entertainment clients in Los Angeles. And, you know, I don't think I'm the kind of guy that anymore can say he has his ear to the streets. But, um, you know, I did listen to a Taylor Swift song yesterday and discovered that it has a reference to a will and trust dispute. So I'll be posting about this on LinkedIn. But if you there's she has a new song called Antihero. And in the third verse, there is a line about a will and trust dispute. So I guess that makes me for a man who's 44 and has a kid and doesn't watch TV. I know something about pop culture, at least. Oh, my gosh. OK, this is, I think, the first time that Taylor Swift has been mentioned on Fraudish. And I will tell you, I am going to Taylor Swift this summer in Seattle. Not, I'm not telling you which one of the three days, but my daughter was able to get tickets. So, oh, my God, that's so good. So you just said you didn't watch TV, but you have a kid, so you probably stream. Do you have any sort of pop culture, PI, con artist things that you recommend to the audience? You know, people often, one of the hard parts is when you're not a person who doesn't know a lot of popular culture, but you're in my businesses, everyone comes to me and I meet them at an event or something and they will say, oh, is it like this show? Is it like that show? And I don't know any of these shows, but the one show that many, many years ago, a colleague of mine, uh, pointed out to me that I really like 
um, is Bored to Death on HBO, which is no longer on anymore. It was done in you know the mid 2000s, I would say, maybe late 2000s. Um, but of all the shows, it really uh, it feels much more like me because I'm not a trench coat wearing guy. I'm not an ex cop. And I'm not like a, I don't think I'm like a spy, espionage, intelligence agency kind of guy either. I'm just kind of like a, just who I am. And I just do what I do. Um, but Bored to Death, it has Jason Schwartzman in it and Ted Danson. And um, I'm sorry, it's, I don't think it's Jason Schwartzman. Who is it? I can't remember the name of the, the, the lead. Um, Zach Galifianakis is in it. Oh, okay. Really good. And the main character is a guy who he's breaking up with his girlfriend and he's very bored at home in Brooklyn or something. And he's on Craigslist, like looking for a new apartment. And he sees an ad for someone who's seeking a private. And no, he puts up an ad saying, I will be your unlicensed private investigator. And he starts taking on cases and he has these, you know, it's, it's a common. He has all these escapades with Ted Danson. Um, and what I like about it is like me, he kind of came into this business kind of accidentally. You know, I didn't come in it through a Craigslist ad and I have a license. Um, but some of the best investigators I know came into this business, not through law enforcement, not through the intelligence services, but often from being writers and creative people who found that this was a better way for them to make a living. And in fact, that's the origins of this business in the United States. Guys like Jim Mintz and Jules Kroll and a lot of those guys, like they were all investigative reporters in the 70s and 80s and they realized they could make a lot more money selling their services to private equity and law firms in manhattan and dc and you know so i used to work for a company called mince group which is a great company and many many of the best investigators there were people who at the on the side were had book projects or had written for magazines um had done all kinds of were playwrights um one of them a fellow who I work with still, and I think is fantastic. He had been a rabbi, um, a lot of really creative, interesting people. And I think that's often where that sort of flexibility and that creativity and investigations come from. And that we're kind of just kind of used to kind of our brains being a little flexible and our expectations being a little pliable and our sort of our ability to kind of work through issues in a creative way. Because um, it's not, if you're an investigator and you're always thinking in a straight line, it's very, very hard. You have to have that, what I was taught to think of as that swinging from branch to branch mentality, which is if you sort of imagine that you're a monkey in the jungle and you see on the other side of the jungle, there's a big bunch of juicy bananas and all these vines, you know, from here to there, you've got to figure out like, what's the pattern of vines that I'm going to need to swing on in order to get to the goal. It's not going to be straightforward and you're going to go vine to vine and then you're going to realize you're hanging there and there's no vine near and you're going to have to swing back and readjust until you can reassess and find the right path. And that's what makes a really good investigator is when you run into those roadblocks, you're able to work backwards and think of another approach. And you've got to have a full toolkit of approaches to be successful to get the findings that I was saying earlier. Oh my gosh, I knew this would be great. This is honestly one of my favorite episodes, truly, because you guys, there's just so much information here. Um, uh, a rabbi as a PI. Okay. I'm going to have to get his contact information. Um, <laughs> okay. But you do strike me as a book reader. Are there any books in this sort of space that you would recommend to people? You know, I will, I should, I, I could pitch a couple books that I think are 
really good because I just want to acknowledge. And um, there's a PI here in Oakland uh, named Mike Spencer, who is sort of oh, the yeah. East Bay. You know, Mike, has he been on your show? He is going to be on my show. Good. Mike is fantastic. And he has written a book. I don't have the name in front of it right now, but it's something like, you know, PI Confidential or something like that. I mean, he tells really good stories, real authentic stories about being a PI that are not dressed up in a lot of nonsense and a lot of secretiveness. And really that like, gives you a good sense of what it's like to be, you know, he's a he's a good retail PI um, who just has just been doing it a long time. And I, I really, really um, like his book a lot. Um, but, you know, I read a book recently by a guy named Mike Walkshaw, who has a good book on uh, forensic document examination. Um, he's down in LA, Walkshaw, Mike Walkshaw. And he has a book that's like a guidebook to attorneys, basically, on how to think about document forgery issues and how to analyze documents. Um, that was really uh, uh, an excellent book. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of people who have written books in this genre because people like to hear stories about PIs. Um, they all kind of tend to be more or less the same. And what I'm usually reading books like this for is I want to pick up tips and tricks, and they tend to sort of be more anecdotish and not really explain how they did the things. And that's really what I want to know. I think it's cool to read something about how a person, you know, had a success, but I really want to know, well, but mechanically, how did you figure that out? And when you did that interview, like, how did you get them to talk about that? And unfortunately, I think that that genre is a little thin on, on that kind of material. Um, but Mike Spencer's book is really good. I highly recommend that. Everyone go buy that. Yeah. And I'll put it in the show notes. That's awesome. That is awesome. So you mentioned um, having a child and I'm not going to ask particulars at your age, but my kids found my work is boring, but their friends were always fascinated. Do you get that where your kids, friends are fascinated what you do? I don't think they, you know, my daughter's only eight. So I don't think her friends have much consciousness of me really. Other than <laughs> I just cuts up snacks for them when they come over for the play date. Um, but, they but will my daughter, eventually. I'm sorry, they will eventually, they will eventually. Yeah. And I expect that will be kind of interesting. And certainly the parents are very interested in it. Um, but my daughter, Nomi, she loves my work. She's very interested in it. She she demands and insists that she's part of the Klein group. And she is. And there have actually been times when I mean, we were talking about like document examination where I've been looking at some documents that were I thought I was wondering if the signature was legit. And I print out copies of the exemplars and the, the document we were looking at. And my daughter and my wife and I, we all just like sat around at the dining room table and, you know, tried to make judgments. And, you know, I asked my daughter her opinion. And, um, you know, she's she's very interested in crime and things like that and bad deeds. And, you know, she's sort of grown up, especially maybe because of COVID, where we were all in the house together for a couple of years. You know, she's very interested in my work and likes to hear the stories of things that I work on. And as you can tell, I really like talking about what I do. And so long before I was doing any fraudish podcast, I was answering my daughter's questions about how do you do this or what happened that time? Or daddy, tell me about that case or who are you just talking to right then? You know, and um, it's fun. She definitely knows more about the world of crime and bad deeds than most eight year olds do, I'm sure. 
Okay, you're gonna have to be sure and have her listen to this because I will. I will. And and because she's younger, I'm gonna say she should leave a review if she likes it, and I know she will like it. So okay, closing out, and oh my god, this has been so amazing, truly. Um, I ask, what have I not asked you that you want to get out to the audience? Hmm. I think I would just re reinforce what you said about connecting with me on LinkedIn, which is I have a very very open LinkedIn acceptance policy, which is as long as you don't appear to me to be some sort of like Chinese bot agent or something, I'm delighted to connect. Um, if you don't want to connect, you can just follow me. Um, and I have a pretty open door policy that if you have questions, or you're interested in how you could do something, if you're interested in career advice, if you're wondering why this search you're trying to do isn't working. I love talking about what I do and sharing, and I don't believe in having any trade secrets at all. I think that's a really, really silly perspective in a world in which it would be much better if the investigations industry were more professionalized and people were more open and talking about what they did. If there was an accountant who was telling you, I can't tell you how I did that, you would not hire that accountant again. And there's absolutely nothing that I do and that most private investigators do that's illegal, unethical, or embarrassing. You just have to know how to do it. And... I'm happy to share that and the things that I know with anyone. So please, please reach out. Happy to talk, email, Zoom, whatever you like. So, okay, fraudish audience, you know what I do. I send out connection requests and I personalize them. So personalize it to Avi and say, hey, heard you on fraudish. You were amazing. I'd love to connect. I'm just telling people that is how they should do the connection because then you'll know where they came from and the connection there. And then finally, my one last question, what is the last thing you Googled before you came on the podcast? The last thing I Googled before I came on the podcast, that's a great question. You know, I have to just, unless you, I, we take the time to look, I can't, I can't say, um, but I'm a very, very heavy Googler, you know, like all of us are. Um, and, you know, just to mention learning good Google search technique, please people, even you lawyers out there, it's not hard. Set it to a hundred, set it to a hundred results, even just doing that is a really, really big thing you can do because of the psychological component where people will say, I searched and I got through the first two pages of Google and I couldn't find anything. We give up. That's why like nobody reads the second page of an article on newyorktimes.com or whatever, because we're just trained that way. If you change your settings to get 100 results, you can just overcome that very easily. You still have to do a good search, but you won't get discouraged or you won't give up after you looked at 20 items on your Google search. Oh my gosh, that is so good. Oh, we are going to have you back for sure. And um, this was awesome. Thank you so much. I just, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Kelly. You're very welcome. and really glad to have been invited. Just so incredibly awesome. Did you take notes? What do you think about tow trucks now? Did you switch your Google results to 100? Are you connecting with Avi? Well, you all should be, because if you don't, I won't think you are truly serious about investigations. That is how strongly I feel about him and his work. He is Mr. Pay It Forward. Has this been one of your favorite episodes? If so, please leave a review. His daughter will love that too. I see a second generation of Klein LLC. Have a great week. Connect with Avi, read a book, listen to a podcast. Thank you, Avi, and all of the fraudish audience.